Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is a full professor of atmospheric physics at Bayero University Kano in Nigeria. She holds a PhD, MSc and BSc in physics and an MSc in environment and development and is an expert in the effects of dust aerosols on the climate and air quality measurements. In 2015, she received an Elsevier Foundation award for women scientists in the developing world which rewards and encourages women working and living in developing countries who are in the early stages of their scientific careers. having often overcome great challenges to achieve research excellence i'm excited to welcome our guest professor rabia said our interview today is temi topwe adibayo temi topwe is a phd candidate in epidemiology at the swiss tropical and public health institute and university of basel in chronic disease unit she has a msc public health degree with specialization in environmental epidemiology and biostatistics from the university of pretoria in south africa She has worked on spatial temporal dynamics in malaria in South Africa and her current research interest is understanding the combined health effects of multiple air pollutants on cardiorespiratory diseases in Cape Town. Welcome to the show Rabia and Temi. Thank you very much Shazad for that warm introduction and thank you so much Professor Said for being here with us today. Thank you so much. So Professor Said, I think before we even move on with this conversation that we're going to have today, I really just want to say it's such a great honor to be here with you to be able to speak to you today, and I just want to appreciate you for the formidable and exceptional work you continue to do, particularly to empower young girls in northern Nigeria and beyond, and for being an incredible inspiration to women. So thank you for taking the time to join us today. We really do appreciate it. So you are one of the very few scientists specializing in atmospheric physics and nuclear science. In addition, you have exceptionally rich and diverse experience as a researcher, a teacher, a mentor, and an administrator. So just to give our listeners a taste of what's to come, can you just give us a brief overview of what scientific problems you've had to work on during your career? For me, if I start with uh, what is relevant to what we are looking at today, I actually did my PhD on dust aerosols and the impacts on the environment and how the linkages with climate change and how it impacts global warming as well. So that is the beginning of how I ventured into air pollution, air quality, and looking at the dust, its impacts on the environment. my phd study looked at the different types of dust particularly the saharan dust and then looking at the composition because generally we look at just the dust but then without considering dust that comes into the atmosphere have different compositions and then we wanted to look at how that composition actually either helps in the absorption or the scattering so that we have dust that are maybe rich in iron rich in calcite rich in hematite and so on and those were the things that i looked at and then subsequently i supervised graduate students who were looking at also the different impacts of dust aerosols particularly how it impacts on visibility looking at aerosol optical depth and so on for many years it is known that when it's around the march period 
the Saharan dust tends to spread to parts of Europe. I remember two weeks ago, I looked out from my window in Basel and I could see the sky was orange. And I just knew it's that time of the year again where the Saharan dust is blown into Europe. You can see it in Paris, you can see it in London and Belgrade. And the Saharan dust also crosses the Atlantic, arriving at the South and Central America. Events like this are quite extraordinary, as it seems, and very frequent. And the estimation is that every year, a range of 1,000 to 3,000 teragrams of mineral dust is released into the atmosphere. So can you provide our listeners with an overview of why it is important to understand dust dynamics and maybe later on touch on the atmosphere and its impact on the Earth's ecosystems? Yeah, it's actually very important that we continue to monitor the dust dynamics. And just as you have mentioned, this is a global thing. Here in Kano, which is northern Nigeria, the impact of the dust has been so bad that the horizontal visibility has been, been found to be like 400 meters. It's been so bad that flights have been cancelled and a lot of things are not going right because of the dust. And then we shouldn't forget that the importance of actually monitoring this dust has to do with health because of uh, the dust particles, especially the ones that have much less than 2.5 micrometers, they can be very very harmful. Those are the PM 2.5 and on inhalation, they can get right into the lungs and then they can cause respiratory diseases. So this is something that we really need to look at. And because it also impacts on the air quality, it is something that we have to seriously, continuously monitor. And apart from the Sahara, the dust coming from the Sahara, we know it can travel so far, it travels such long distances that it can get to Europe and it can get to America. This long distance that it travels because of the wind, the wind direction is also something that needs to be considered. In the northern part of Nigeria, in the northeast, the dust actually for now is arising from the Bodili Depression around the Lake Chad region. And this is what we are witnessing here in Nigeria. And it can travel over the Atlantic by the tropical winds, and it can get to so many faraway places like the Caribbean islands. Thank you very much, Professor. I'm glad you brought up the um, Lake Chad region because when people think about the Saharan dust and its presence in European and South America or Central American countries, they only think of the Saharan dust. But the Lake Chad, especially the Bodilia depression, is one that people in that region also have to deal with and experience. And my question is, you did point out that these deserts are not homogeneous, right? They, they are rich in minerals, ions, and all of that. And so regions are prone to this release of dust more than others. I think the European area, they get their stings once in a year, but other regions maybe more frequently than that. So my question now is, what are the processes that lead to the emission of this massive amount of dust? Okay, the dusts really actually do originate in places where we have this dry spell and windy conditions. And this is why deserts are known to be the areas where you get the dust coming from. One, particularly because there are no tree covers, so that can actually break the wind and probably cut the movement of the dust. So there are open spaces and then there's, the dust will just move. And because of the open spaces also, the wind speed also helps in driving the dust. 
in places where the bodily depression were around the lake chart, the lake chart became so dry and the body of water of the lake is getting smaller and smaller. And then the regions around the lake is now dry and mainly made up of dust. And these are loose dust. As soon as we have wind movement, it moves the dust in Nigeria. It's around the northeast of Nigeria and it will move it down into the north central then we get to the northwest and from there it moves up also down into the southern part of Nigeria. Now we have noticed in part of our research that we were doing, monitoring this, uh, the wind movement and the dust across Nigeria, we noticed that the dust, when it moves across Nigeria, moves into the south south, southwest, southeast, and then it remains in the, in the atmosphere longer than it does even in the north, in the northeast and the north central and the northwest. And this is because it encounters place where the wind is not as fast as it is in the north, and therefore the larger particles, they just blanket into the atmosphere and they remain there. And that is one of the things that we are looking at, even the Nigeria Meteorological Agency are looking at that. Then you get a kind of dust loading in the southwest where it is not the source of the dust itself. Some of these interesting uh, dynamics that we are seeing, and we are seeing them now as part of a network of monitoring under the Purple Air. It's a center for atmospheric research in Nigeria in uh, collaboration with uh, an organization, Penn State University, a professor of meteorology. And we are looking at some of these dynamics and uh, a lot of data is coming up, looking at the particulate matter from the dust storms. Thank you very much, Prof. Um, I'm glad you spoke about Nigeria. I would like us to expand a bit to the sub-Saharan Africa region. So in addition to this naturally released dust, we know that land use change and desertification across the planet are expected to increase the amount of dust aerosol loaded into the atmosphere. So could you briefly touch on the process specifically in the context of sub-Saharan and the impact it will have on people living in rural and urban areas? And if we can just look into which regions are likely to be more vulnerable, which countries are likely to be more vulnerable as a result of this? Okay. Let's say if we take the Saharan dust, which is the one that is usually looked at in most of the global, when we talk about dust, they talk about the Saharan dust. The countries in North Africa will be affected. And like I said, also the dust from the Sahara moves up even the Caribbean islands. And then it moves also across to even up to the Barbados. And then in China, around the Gobi Desert, also they are affected by the dust. We can have those kind of heavy dust storms around those areas. It can also blow even into North America because those are areas that we call the dust bowl regions around the North America. And apart from the natural dust that is blowing, we expect that construction and agricultural activities would also throw up a lot of dust and a lot of the countries across the Atlantic laws will be affected. You and your team, you've been working on showing how the sub-Saharan dust can influence temperature, particularly in Nigeria. So can you please discuss this with our audience to explain to them in the context of air pollution and climate change? One of the studies that I did about the temperature affecting the dust, and then also we look at the temperature. Now, if we have a dust that contains a lot of uh, hematite content, those are the ones that the reddish dust, we expect those dust 
to contain the properties that would absorb. And if it is absorption, we're expecting that there would be maybe a reduction in temperature. But then if we have those that are reflectant, uh, that is those that contain a lot of coarse material, they will reflect more of the solar radiation. And if they reflect more of the solar radiation back into the atmosphere, we'll be expecting a cooling. While for the other one, we'll be expecting a heating. So some of the work that we have done is to look at how this will impact on climate change. It's possible to look at some of the dust, study the properties of the dust, and see how we can use some of these properties for mitigation of climate change. And these are some of the work that uh, we have done, and we have looked at those uh, dust, the Saharan dust, and uh, the properties that we can utilize in order to mitigate uh, climate change. So speaking about climate change and the fact that if we were to tackle air pollution, there are co-benefits for climate change actions. And in the compendium that you released in 2019, where it showcased your work, which is students, details that detailed findings about air quality and air pollution in Kano, how has this work advanced and to what extent does this work contribute to air quality issues in the conversation, particularly for national planning in Nigeria? We have continued to have the conversation since the publishing of that compendium. And what we have realized is that air quality remains a factor which drives comorbidities such as respiratory and cardiovascular diseases. And we realize that a lot of this is exacerbated by environmental factors. And it is important that we look at our air quality and make sure that the policymakers also put it into part of the policies to continuously monitor and also guide people on what actions to take when we have uh, this very poor quality. There has been a lot of links and interaction between particulate matter and uh, air quality. And particulate matter would be from whatever we have, the dust in the atmosphere. And uh, we need to be able to now study this uh, and look at the linkages with respiratory diseases and uh, how it impacts on health. Already it has been shown that air quality impacts on cognitive performance, which means that it can also determine how brilliant the population would be. So already that has been established. And then we have seen that trees have a direct and indirect effect on air quality. So it would be a good thing to promote tree planting because it will help in the air quality. And at the same time, it will help the atmosphere because the trees will serve as carbon sinks. So these are some of the things that came out of that compendium and the studies that we did with the students that we need to be able to realize that the pollutants in the atmosphere, they get dispersed through transport, through mixing process. With the dust that we have as it is moving, like if I use the Nigerian context, as it moves down into the southwest and the southeast, it will get mixed up with other pollutants. Because within the Nigerian context, we also have biomass burning. And apart from the biomass burning, if we take Nigeria in particular, we also have this, uh, because of the lack of electricity, a lot of small generating sets, which also volatile organic compounds. So these dust particles will also be mixed with all of this. 
And then uh, by the time it gets farther away from the point of generation, it has become not just the dust, but a mixture of a lot of pollutants, which needs to be monitored, to be looked at, and then probably analyzed to see what the contents are and how they affect the environment and how they affect humans. Thank you, Prof. So my next question is particularly of personal interest to me. And I want to know, what is Nigeria doing in terms of putting in place air quality monitoring system, collecting the data, analyzing the data, actually quantifying the effect of air pollution and dust on human health? Because every day we hear about the suit in Potakot, we hear about People telling us, oh, Nigeria is one of the most polluted countries in the world. But the question is, where are they getting the data from? But because they're extrapolating data from remote sensing, it then begs the question, at what point are we putting our own air quality systems in place and actually collecting the data for ourselves? Because you have the expertise, you have the knowledge, you have students with the know-how. What are the effort that is being made? And how accessible will this data become, especially not just the air quality data, but also health outcome data? The reason why we had the memorandum of understanding between the Center for Atmospheric Research at uh, the Kogi State University in Ayamba, headed by Professor Babatunde Rabiu, with the Kent State University, was actually as a result of a need to have a database and to have a network of monitoring the air pollutants within the country and also putting the data out there so that the policymakers can see. So at a preliminary stage, what we have done is to create a network of just a simple air quality monitoring devices called the Purple Air. And under the Purple Air network, we have different devices placed in different locations in Nigeria. My university has two. One is the Purple Air and then the Clarity device, all of them measuring real-time data of uh, PM 2.5, PM 10, PM 1.0 daily and uh, in real time, they're online, which can be checked. And then we are also collaborating with uh, NESRIA, the Environmental Monitoring Agency in Nigeria, such that if the data is available, and the data is actually available now, even though sometimes we have some challenges and some, there are some missing data, but then we are actually working on it and linking all the different data from all the locations that we are monitoring. And we expect that with some of this data, we can actually be able to keep monitoring and at the same time, ginger the Nigerian government or those who make the policy to continuously provide opportunities to keep monitoring and also enlighten the populace about why it is important to have good air quality. There are different organizations actually working. Sometimes in Nigeria, it looks like uh, maybe things are not uh, really going fast, but we are actually doing a lot. And we hope that the government will keep assisting. The Center for Atmospheric Research, like I said, uh, which is under uh, Professor Babatunde Rabiu, are really doing a lot. And they are also a part of the government, the Federal Ministry of Science and Technology. And some of this work are disseminated in work. Workshops, and then we also include the policymakers. Part of our team is a deputy director with the Nigeria Meteorological Agency. And some of the data that we also collect is also handled by the agency. 
I guess a lot is being done. It's just, uh, it's maybe slow. And then we're trying as much as we can to put them online because I realize that that's one of the things that is usually missing. You want to search for data for Nigeria and you cannot find it online. Most times you have to like go physically to the agencies to get some of this data. It's one of the things that we are working on to try to see that we can have some of these uh, online and people can assess them easily. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because my current PhD, I initially wanted to do my study using Nigerian data, but that was not available. And it got to a point where we have to pay to actually get data that was publicly available. And that did not make sense. And it just felt like I was going to spend three years of my PhD life trying to get data that should be readily available for anyone to use. And I'm glad you brought up the fact that we need to ginger this policymakers because in light of the recently um, updated WHO air quality guidelines and the fact that Nigeria is a signature to the Sustainable Development Goal, the Kyoto Protocol, so many protocols, it is about time we start to see this output because that would actually, in a way, ginger other people to collaborate and help move the agenda forward so we can start reaching these goals quicker. Because at this point, it just looks like we're lagging behind when it comes to the conversation around air pollution. And the conversation keeps going on online. People calling for help with the Ebony cleanup, with the suit and portacot, with the fact that you also mentioned it. This could impact brains of children growing up and making them less smart than they should be. And the WH already said it is everybody's human right to actually have clean air. We shouldn't have to breathe in bad air quality. So it is necessary that we move this agenda forward. And for us to do that, we also need to see what's happening, what's going on. So I'm looking forward to seeing all of this output online whenever it's made available. You mentioned, you know, those challenges that are already in place and some of it even obvious right now, the fact that the ASU strike is still on, students are not in university. And so my question is, you recently published with your colleagues, recently published an article in Nature and this is with professors from African universities and you discussed the challenges and the potential of studying physics in Africa. And you know that there are three challenges when it comes to study of physics in Africa. You said one of them is a challenge of numbers, the challenge of catch-up, the challenge of paucity of research institutes and industry. So for people who have not read this article, which I would encourage you to go look for the article, Professor, can you please expand on this point for our audience, giving some examples of these challenges from your own experience working in Nigeria? And let's talk about creative ways and solutions that you see that can be implemented to help overcome these challenges. Yeah, thank you very much. Like those three challenges that you mentioned, particularly the challenge of catch up. We start our research and because of the lack of infrastructure and some of the things that we need, we find ourselves behind. Like you mentioned, you wanted to use some of data from Nigeria and they're not available. And actually that experience that you have is so rampant. A lot of our researchers, the same thing over and over again. I've been finding it very difficult to understand why some of this data cannot be placed online. You search and then you won't find them. And then you have to go physically. And then when you go physically, then you need to like pay for them and so on. So this time that is wasted while you are trying to get the things you need for your research in place and then to do your analysis. By the time you finish your analysis, you find that outside those who have everything readily available, they have already concluded and done the analysis and it is already published. So by the time you start publishing your analysis, we are way behind. 
what do you do in order to catch up? That energy of trying to catch up is one of the things that we are trying to address. And in trying to address this in our network, the atmospheric group with the Center for Atmospheric Research, we're trying to link up with institutions and professors outside Nigeria so that if we have this collaboration, then we would be able to, whatever the resources that we need, and if there are infrastructure and so on, for those who do the research, you can have the collaboration. People can have travel grants. And they would go there and get all that they need in order to do the analysis and meet up with the scientific world at the stage at which they are without us lagging behind. That is at least one of the ways that we decided that we could try to do. And then secondly is to continuously link up with other institutions and see if there is a way to get grants for our laboratories. And some researchers are already doing that. Postdocs who have gone to study outside go for their postdoc and then when they get back, they try to get equipment and research tools and analysis tools from the universities because I know somebody who went and then when he came back to the university in Nigeria, he realized that there were some of the equipments that they are no longer used, which they considered obsolete. Not that they are not working, but they could donate it to the universities in Nigeria. So such kind of collaborations are the things that we are trying to look at now. But at the same time, we'll have to keep this network so that whatever data we have, try to bypass the government bottleneck and find a way of putting them out there online for people to use. And then that will create more visibility for researchers in Nigeria and uh, more collaborations. In fact, maybe more funding even if it can be seen that these are the things that we are doing and the data that we are obtaining and they see that we're actually doing good science. We can have a lot of collaborations and even funding. Speaking of funding, I just want to know, how is the Nigerian government contributing and supporting this initiative, this work that has been done? Because it does appear, from what I see with the conversation online, people are very much interested in doing this work. People are passionate about the environment. They want to see a change. And it appears as though the infrastructure, the space is not conducive for people to do the work. So there's the problem of funding and there's the problem of bureaucracy and the bottleneck. And my question then is, how are we engaging with the government to really make them see the point? Because it looks like they don't understand it or they don't care about it. They are not feeling the urge that the populace are feeling. And how are we engaging them to bring them onto the side of, we need to do something about it right now? On that note too, I believe it is this dichotomy that we have between the government, the researchers in the university, and also industries. I think the Nigerian government is trying now under the National University Commission when they came up with the triple helix model. And in this model is that they want to be able to now link so that there, was, there is no gap between researchers in the universities, the industry and government. If we can create this synergy, if it works, if the government continue to push it or the National University Commission continue to push the triple helix model, perhaps then we will be able to overcome this situation where we have funding organizations from outside the country wanting to fund research. But in order to fund research, they will have to go through government. And if they go through government, then government is not in synergy with the researchers within the university. 
We have experts within the university who are supposed to utilize that fund for the research. And then we have people in government. And I just don't want to like say this, but we will have people who have a different interest. And uh, so if the funders find that the government is not doing what is supposed to be the right thing, then they tend to withdraw the fund. But if we can get this synergy of the triple helix and it is understood that if funders want to come through government, they actually look for the expert without any favoritism, not looking at, okay, we're going to give it to social person even when they are not the expert in that field. But look at just the expert in the field, not because this fund is my brother, I know him. So if we can get to that point in Nigeria, I think it will be okay. But that's the hurdle that we will need to cross and get more baby technocrats in the, in the areas that, that will be responsible for connecting government with funders, with the researchers, and then with industry. And industry can actually fund research if we can get that collaboration. And I know in other universities may also be doing it, but we are doing that in my university under a directorate called the Directorate of Research, Innovation and Partnership. And they're trying as much as they can to make sure that the researchers in the university are linked to industry. And then sitting down with the industry and looking at the research that is beneficial within their and then they can provide funding, even if it's like a partnership kind of funding for those research. Directorate was established not too long ago. I don't think it's up to five years now. So it is still evolving. I was once a deputy director in that directorate, and I'm still working with them. Research funding comes from the tertiary education trust fund, competitive, and then a lot of people submit. We can get research funds. For example, I'm on a team, I'm a co-investigator in a research that was funded with about 27 million naira. And that is to look at renewable energy resources, looking at hydrogen production in order to help counter some of the effects of fossil fuels and so on. So those are little, little steps. They are not giant steps. And probably this is why they are not in the public domain as much yet, not so visible. But if they are there, we are doing them gradually, one step at a time. My next question is, how can careers in physics, environmental science, demographic science, all of that be valued and promoted in order to build the capacity in Nigeria to tackle climate change and other public health? What would you say to that to motivate people considering going into those spaces? I will say exactly as I've always said, that they should try as much as possible to learn about the environment. You know, the thing is, once you start to learn about the environment, you read about it, you look at it. It actually brings out a lot of interest. I think uh, one of the things that gingered me was just looking at the environment, like at this particular point where we have this dust in the environment and why this dust? What can I do to prevent? And then we start to read. Once you start to read, you build up the interest. And it is that interest that would now motivate you to go further. We had the town hall meeting on the suit in uh, Port Harcourt. When it happened, a lot of people didn't pay attention. They didn't pay attention about the suit. But you'll walk in your room on the floor. And when you look at your feet, you find that it has already turned black. So that tells you that within the floor is a blanket of soot that is already just blowing within the air and it is settling down. And if it is there like that, it means you must be breathing it in also. 
So it is also impacting on your loans. So if we keep building the awareness, asking people to look at what they can see within the environment, I think it will generate more interest and people will be willing to study. And then for us acting as role models, a lot of times girls will come to me and say that we had you were talking about the environment, you were talking about this, it has made me very interested. I would like to be an environmentalist or I would like to study any part of environmental science and so I believe these are the ways in which we can continue to get more people to be interested and then maybe even do further than what we are doing because young minds are more fertile. They will even think of better ways than we are thinking about. So I'm actually encouraging the young ones to look at their environment, study the environment, read as much as they can. And uh, these days it's even easier to read because you can just search for it online and get all the information that you require. Very well said, Professor. Thank you so much. And let's carry on the conversation into your personal journey. You are truly inspiring. You have a truly inspiring life and you need one as well. And you're an inspiration to not only young girls or researchers and students, but many researchers worldwide. Can you talk a little about the personal challenges you have had to overcome to arrive at where you are today? And let's talk about it from a very specific context of growing up in the North, of being a Northerner, and understanding that education is not something a lot of people or in the current crisis of Boko Haram want girl children, girl child to aspire to. And for you to reach such a feat, it is very, very inspiring. It just gives children or girls and even boys that it can be done. So let's have a conversation about what challenges you had to face for, for that to happen. And I remember reading an article where it said you even had to sell the diary, the jewelry to go from the diary to go to school. And for some people, they might not be able to wrap their heads around that, that you have to sell personal possession, something sentimental like that, just to achieve your goal. Yeah, a lot of challenges, especially for me. I finished my secondary school in 1981, and uh, immediately after that, I was supposed to just go to the university. But then I had some challenges, and then in 1983, I got married. So just barely uh, two years after my secondary school, instead of going to the university, I actually got married. And it was part of that that was uh, the challenge, uh, being married and then becoming a mother very soon, but a year after and so I was not able to go back to the university until around 1990. And in 1990, I only did the preliminary part. So it was almost 10 years after secondary school in 1991 that I started the Bachelor of Science degree. And because money was short at that time as a young couple with young children, uh, this was why I had to sell those jewelry. At that time, if you are given an admission into the university, you are given a time to accept and then to go and pay the school fees. And uh, if you don't do it on time, you lose your slot of admission at that time. And because I didn't have the money then, and I really wanted to get in in that year. So this was what prompted me to, to actually do that. And uh, if we don't forget, in northern Nigeria, usually those jewelries and whatever you are given when you get married, they are considered to be like uh, something that you keep in case you need it. When money is short or something, you use them, but at the same time, when it is needed. And for me, I thought education was so important that I needed to get into the university. So that was why I sold it and then paid the fees at the time and then got in and then to continue. 
So I got into the university with classmates that were like uh, 10 years younger than me because I had lost that 10 years before getting into the university. So I was studying, I was married, I had children. And, and so I was like a, an older person within the class. Uh, so um, I mean, those were those were the challenges uh, that we faced, but I was able to finish the first degree. And then after the first degree, in 1999, they wanted to get females into the university in my department, the Department of Physics. Department of Physics had not had any female at that time. That was like 20 years after establishing the university. So we were employed as graduate assistant in 1999. So I and my colleague, who is also a professor now, we started as the first two females. And then gradually, there are five more females in the department now. And those have served as role models for other girls to come into physics. It is my belief that uh, we need more people in any of the fields that people consider to be maybe male-dominated. As much as we have more females in those fields, others will be encouraged to come into the field. So I think role modeling, mentoring others, those will be the ways in which we can get more of the females into the field and even encourage even the boys to not just go only into engineering, but also these other fields as well. And I think we are getting there gradually. Thank you very much, Professor. And I honestly want to say it's been a great pleasure to have this conversation with you. And I really do wish you all the best in all your future endeavors and how you help to uplift girls, how you contribute to Nigeria and beyond Nigeria when it comes to tackling air pollution and climate change and your work in the mentorship that you provide to students and girls. I really do wish all the best for you and looking forward to possibly working with you sometime in the near future. And to Shazad, I would like to say thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your podcast today and to be interviewing Professor Saeed. It's been such a great pleasure. Thank you so much. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Professor Rabe Saeed, and our interviewer, Temitope Adibayo, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.